Blessed Lord, we do pray that you will once again speak. Speak to our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit. Illumine them to receive your word. Lord, open to us a deeper understanding of your heart for our world, your heart for your church, to be your presence in places that lack your presence. Lord, open my lips that my mouth would proclaim your praise. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please go ahead and be seated. Thank you. Awesome. I've just been informed there is cake in the fridge, so hold tight and we'll get to it in a little bit. But it is wonderful to be back with you. Uh, it, it was a deep layoff. Thanks. Thank you. And first of all, I want to say thank you again. Uh, thank you to the vestry. Thank you to all of you for supporting us in this uh, sabbatical season and, and making it uh, uh, possible for us, uh, for the way that you as a parish came together and the way the leadership really came together. Um, I, I honestly can say I really did not worry over the summer. And that was a huge blessing. While I can't promise that I am returning the totally chill Zen master that my friend Eddie Hopkins set me up to be last Sunday, <laughs> I do feel a deep sense of refreshment and, and renewed excitement as well for what God is going to do in our community in this new season as we journey again together. One of the other things I learned this summer, though, is how to take very complex thoughts, very complex uh, you know, whole books of the Bible and reduce them to one sentence. I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I blame the book essentialism, Eric. But take the book of Acts, which we are launching into over the next eight weeks or so. 28 chapters, a huge text, and I'll give it to you in one sentence. God establishing a gospel presence in a gospel-deficient world. God establishing his gospel presence in a gospel deficient world. I actually think, joking aside, I think that's actually an excellent thesis to look, a lens to look at the book of Acts through. And so that's going to be the lens uh, that we look at it through over these next several weeks. At its core, the book of Acts is the story of God establishing a gospel presence which is to say the presence of his son Jesus after the powerful work of the cross and a resurrection, the presence of the resurrected Jesus in a Jesus-deficient, a gospel-deficient world. And so we begin this morning as God initiates this work in uh, sort of uh, ground zero the holy city of Jerusalem. In chapter 1 of Acts, Jesus, he, he commissions his apostles, he, he commissions the church, and he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost ends of the earth. That also is a great lens to look at the 
book of Acts through because that's exactly the progression we see unfold. It starts in Jerusalem and then all of Judea and then Samaria and then it goes out to all of the known world. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and let's look at how God begins this work of, of planting, of establishing gospel presence in a gospel deficient world. First, in order to really appreciate what's going on in the story here, we have to understand something about God's, what I like to call, divine divide in order to conquer strategy. Divide to conquer. God plays a long game. That's one of the realities we encounter again and again as we interact with the scriptures. Because the groundwork for this outpouring of the Spirit and the apostles speaking the Word of God in all of the known languages of the world, as all of those folks are going, aren't these guys Galileans? We're hearing them speak in our own language. What is going on here? The groundwork for that was laid way back in Genesis chapter 11. We read there, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And they said to one another, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And the Lord came down to see, Genesis says. And seeing, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. And that's exactly what God does. And that, Genesis tells us, is the origin of all of the diverse language and people groups of the entire world. Now, when one reads through Genesis, that can seem like, frankly, a rather odd passage, right? And that's why we have to remember we benefit from the fact that we now sit at a time in history through the progression of history. We don't have to just sit and scratch our heads and puzzle over Genesis chapter 11 in isolation. We also have Acts chapter 2. These New Testament events occur and ah, now I see, now I get it. That is what God meant by that. That's what God intended. He wasn't threatened by the inhabitants of Babel. He didn't really think they would reach heaven or become somehow invincible and impossible to, uh, you know, master. He meant that there was no end to the pride these people would show. He meant they were their own worst enemy and they will just devolve into complete and utter chaos if I don't do something. And so God says, I need to intervene and divide them in order to work out my perfect plan for their world, for their salvation. I'll divide them up. And then I'll establish the precursors of a kingdom presence in their midst among one of their language groups. And then I'll go among them myself, right into their midst, right into their history. And then I'll pour my presence out into each of those distinct people groups 
in order to conquer their hearts and bring them all back together again through my son, in my son, in his kingdom, the church. That was God's divide to conquer plan. But it took thousands of years to get there. Friends, don't expect to work on our microwavable standards. I don't know about you, but you know, when I, you know, I'm here uh, at, at the office during the week and I bring something with me to you know, heat up for lunch and I'll look at the package and I'll read you know, stovetop directions, you know, like six to seven minutes. Oh, that's going to take way too long. Now I'm going to go with the, with the microwavable directions. Then I'll stick it in the microwave and you know, about a minute in and I'm thinking, oh, come on, get done already. Why is this taking so long, you know? That is not the kind of time frame that God works on. Maybe we can expect it for our food. You can't expect it from God's plan for your life, for you, for your church, for this world. God plays a long game. And it's through this long game that the church finds its place. It's through the church that God seeks to establish his gospel presence in this gospel-deficient world. But how? As the great Christian philosopher, mathematician, scientist, Blaise Pascal said so eloquently, make it, that is the gospel, he said, make it attractive. Make good men and women wish that it were true and then show that it is. Make it attractive. Make good men and women wish that it were true, and then show that it is. That's precisely what we see God doing in Acts chapter 2. Every faithful Jew longed for the fulfillment of God's prophetic promises to Israel. They had lived for many generations under the prophetic consequences of their forefathers' misdeeds, the punishment for their going astray. They needed no one to tell them that the prophets spoke the truth. By the time of this first Pentecost Sunday, there was such an intense longing for God to act, for God to come and deliver his people for God to make good on the hopeful promises that he, uh, the, the promises of restoration that he also spoke through prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and even these words from the prophet Joel. The people were already longing for the gospel, the good news that God had come to save his people. St. Peter didn't have to make these good men and women wish that it were true. The desire for the gospel was already at work in them. These good men and women were wishing with all their might that this act of God was true. Peter just shows that it is. That pattern is still instructive for us as the church today. In his book, The Provocative Church, Graham Tomlin makes the point that this is the pattern of churches of all different types and denominations and sizes and, and, and strokes which are making a difference in their communities, seeing people coming to faith, seeing lives changed by the love, by the good news of Jesus. 
they live out their faith in such a way that it makes everyone, from the casual observer to the tenuous visitor to the earnest seeker, say, they've got something I don't. I want to learn more about what it is because I think I might need it too. Friends, there is no secret sauce other than that. I can't tell you the number of conferences I am invited to each and every year, the number of books I am encouraged to read on finding the right strategy for getting your church to grow. The fact is, I think Graham Tomlin is spot on. There is no killer strategy. There is no evangelistic program or discipleship model that will guarantee success. The secret sauce of an effective gospel-driven church is simply people whose lives have been shaped and touched by Jesus living together in community and living like the gospel actually impacts their behavior, their values, their decisions. I'll say that again because I think it's critically important. The secret sauce of an effective gospel-driven church is simply people's whose lives have been touched by Jesus, living together in community and living like the gospel has an impact on their decisions, their values, their behaviors. And that's precisely what we see in this summary about the life of the first church in Jerusalem. Verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. People whose lives had been impacted by Jesus, living together in community in such a way that the gospel had a demonstrable impact on their behavior, their values, their decisions, their lifestyle. Now, I've taught on these verses in the past, and I love pointing out how Acts 2.42 is actualized here in our weekly worship together as the church. We devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching through the scriptures. We obviously come together. We devote uh, ourselves to fellowship. We break bread, the bread of the Eucharist. And we enter together into prayer but what I want us also to see in this verse is one of the other points I like to make frequently. Our Sunday worship is not the end of these things. It is only the beginning. It is the pattern that teaches us how to live our lives in alignment with these truths. In our formation hour this morning, we were talking about why is it that we come to church and somebody shared, because I need to because it's like the, the reset button that, that helps me remember that I need to be in the scriptures and in prayer and confessing and whatnot. 
We are reminded each week by the very fact that we meet God through the scriptures, that we can meet God each and every day in that same place. That's why each week, you'll find on the back table, we make a schedule of the week, uh, of a calendar of readings. Thank you, Eric and Becky, for making that available so that we can remain devoted to the apostles' teaching. And guess what? You flip that sheet over, and you'll find a little guide to keep us devoted to our corporate prayers as a body. Thank you, Jill. And being devoted to it means we don't just read the text and pray the words. We ask God to apply these truths in our lives so that we can really tangibly live them out. Likewise, being devoted to the fellowship of the church does not mean living for that cup of cheap coffee at the end of church, even when there's cake in the refrigerator to go with it, so that you can catch up with your friends whom you only see but once a week. It means being involved in each other's lives and helping one another in our devotion to the apostolic teaching. I find it intriguing how Luke links these two aspects with a conjunction. There's a parallelism in this list of the church's activities. The apostolic teaching and fellowship are linked, and the breaking of bread and prayer are linked. They're more closely joined. I'm certain that this is intentional, because to truly devote ourselves, to devote our lives to the teaching of the Scripture requires us to engage with one another in fellowship. To interpret the scriptures rightly and apply them, it requires input. Now, there are plenty of times that people have come to me over the years and asked me about how to understand and apply certain scriptures. And I love those conversations. I, I live for them. It is one of the highlights of my week when they happen. But the truth is, to be healthy and growing in your faith I can't be the only person in your life. I can't even be the only person in this parish that you're having those conversations with. I can't be the only one shepherding you to a right understanding and application of the apostolic teaching because those conversations should be coming up too frequently for one man's appointment schedule. To be truly thriving to be a gospel presence in this gospel-deficient community, we have to be intentionally committed to growing as a shepherding community where the community and not just the one shepherd is participating in the work of understanding and applying the scriptures. That's why we have invested so much in our small group ministries. People ask, what do you guys do as a church outside of Sunday morning? Small groups, FFH once a quarter or whatever, but that's about all we've got going on here. Various different kinds of small groups, but small groups. These are groups of people meeting together regularly, and most of them, they are meeting together to look at Scripture and the truth of our faith together to help each other understand and apply them. This is why we're kicking off two daytime Bible studies this fall, one for men and one for women, so that the community can come together and help one another, shepherd one another in devotion to the apostolic teaching and apostolic community. 
But the verse goes on. It talks about two different kinds of breaking of bread. It's clear that the first instance refers to the church breaking bread corporately as a part of their worship. Remember again how it's uniquely joined to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers, which doubtless refers to liturgical prayer. In other words, while it was new to a lot of us who came out of other church traditions, Anglicans did not invent the idea of celebrating the Eucharist every time we get together to worship. The first church was doing it. That's why we do it. We didn't invent it. But the second instance shows up there in verse 46. They also broke bread together in their homes. And this simply refers to sharing meals. They had people into their homes to share the intimacy of table fellowship. I'm reminded of something that my friend Eddie Hopkins said when he preached last Sunday. Hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining. I think he made a critically important point. Hospitality is not the same thing as entertaining. There are plenty of us here who feel like entertaining is not my gift. In fact, we might even go on to say, it's not something I even particularly like, so I'd rather not. That's fine. But that doesn't necessarily let us off the hook either. Hospitality is actually sacrifice. Hospitality is making space for the other. And sometimes God may call us to do that whether we particularly like entertaining or not. It doesn't even always look like table fellowship, even though that's the context we're talking about it here in Acts. It simply means making space for the other in our lives. Because hospitality is a hallmark of the Christian church. It is one of the chief ways that God establishes his presence in places where his presence is lacking. We can't make the gospel attractive. No one is going to be moved to wish it were true if we don't let them into our lives to see how Jesus is impacting us. It is profound how powerful and necessary hospitality is, how central it is to God's plan. There are two final aspects of this account of early church life that I want to touch on last of all. Verses go on. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Signs and wonders were a commonplace in the life of the early church. I was talking with a colleague on the East Coast not long ago, and he was telling me about his parish. He said that they seek to actively cultivate a sense of awe-filled expectation of the supernatural. He went on and said, without the weird stuff. (laughs) But but I love how he put that. I I really appreciated it. Cultivating an awe-filled expectation of the supernatural. It's very biblical. It's very normal in the life of the early church and clearly very impactful because we see droves of people being struck not only with awe but conviction and coming to faith in this gospel message, this good news about Jesus and his saving work. But see, finally, the way that radical gospel values had an equal share in this broad impact. 
It wasn't simply signs and wonders done at the hands of the apostles. We read in verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Remember what I said about living like the gospel actually impacts our lives. Jesus caused these people to become radically generous. Radically generous. Now while this passage has been used throughout history to promote Christian communal living, I don't think selling off all that we have and moving in together is our answer to fulfilling this scripture. I don't think that's necessarily our takeaway from the passage. The takeaway is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ should affect how you spend your money. If your commitment to Jesus doesn't come with feeling a financial pinch every now and again, I'm not judging you. But I would suggest that you need to take a serious look at some things. Jesus causes people to become more generous. The gospel of Jesus should affect the way you spend your time. If you're so busy saying yes to everything else that life has to offer you or offer your kids, that when Jesus or his church asks something of you and you say, I'm sorry, I don't have time for that. Again, I'm not judging you. Believe me, I have five kids. We've always had a policy that each kid only gets to do one thing per season but that still means we're running in five different directions some nights, right? I get it. I get busy. I'm not judging it. But if that's where you're at and you have no margin whatsoever to say yes to Jesus and the call of his church, I would ask you to take a serious look at that. The gospel of Jesus should affect what entertainment you'll fill your life with. It should affect the causes you will or won't support. It should affect the way you teach your children, the, the friendships that you cultivate for yourself and for them, the media voices you listen to or don't. Friends, there is no single aspect of our lives that shouldn't be touched in some way, shape, or form by our commitment to Jesus. And when it does, when our lives begin to take shape, around this all-consuming, all-impacting, great good news that Jesus really is true, that all we have hoped and longed for is fulfilled in Him. When that happens, then we too begin to see the fulfillment of God's game plan, God's long game. We too become His gospel presence in a gospel-deficient area. As we continue through this fall season and through the book of Acts, that's what we're going to continue to see. God spreading his gospel presence into gospel deficient areas. Through the community of the church, through the agency of her individual members. And what I'll bring us back to again and again is that it's a story and a plan that didn't end in chapter 28 of that book. It is still God's plan. It is still God's story, spreading his gospel presence into gospel-deficient areas through his church, through you, his people. Let's pray. Gracious Lord,
we are humbled. Often heard it said, and I, I resonate with the thought, if it were up to me, I don't think this is the plan I probably would have come up with. Entrusting your glorious good news to broken, oftentimes hurting or hurting others, fallible people. And yet that is precisely what you have done. We pray, Lord, that over the course of this fall, you would continue to realign and reshape our lives, our values, our decisions around the truth of this glorious good news that we've come to hope in. And we trust and we pray that as we do that and as we do that together as a body, we will be your presence corporately together here on Sundays and in our homes, but also as we go out from this place into our workplaces, into our schools, into our community groups, to be your presence amidst people that need your presence. So Lord, Holy Spirit, it is to you that we offer ourselves humbly. It's to you we pray as you glorify the fathers through the Son. One God. Amen.